If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie. Scripture lesson this morning, the first one comes from Mark's Gospel, the 11th chapter, verses 1 through 11. This is Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say this, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, why are you, what are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Here ends this reading inspired by God. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. It's Palm Sunday. I assume you didn't have it marked on your calendar. Protestants are not great about holy days other than Christmas and Easter. But since it is, in fact, Palm Sunday, we might as well talk about it. We've just heard half of what happened in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago on this day. I've enlisted Marcus Borg and Dominic Crossan to explain what was happening on the other side of the city. Two processions entered Jerusalem on a spring day in the year 30. It was the beginning of the week of Passover, the most sacred week of the Jewish year. In the centuries since, Christians have celebrated this day as Palm Sunday, the first day of Holy Week. With its climax of Good Friday and Easter, it is the most sacred week of the Christian year. One was a peasant procession, the other an an imperial procession. From the east, Jesus rode a donkey down the Mount of Olives, cheered by his followers. Jesus was from the peasant village of Nazareth. His message 
was about the kingdom of God and his followers came from the peasant class. On the opposite side of the city from the west, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, entered Jerusalem at the head of a column of imperial cavalry, and soldiers, Jesus, and soldiers along with them. Jesus' procession proclaimed the kingdom of God. Pilate's proclaimed the power of empire. The two processions embody the central conflict of this week and what would eventually lead to Jesus' crucifixion. Pilate's military procession was a demonstration of both Roman imperial power and Roman imperial theology. Though unfamiliar to most people today, the imperial procession was well known in the Jewish homeland in the first century. Mark and the community for which he wrote would have known about it, for it was the standard practice of the Roman governors of Judea to be in Jerusalem for the major Jewish festivals. They did so not out of empathetic reverence for the religious devotion of their Jewish subjects, but to be in the city in case there was trouble. There often was, especially at Passover, a festival that celebrated the Jewish people's liberation from an earlier empire. The mission of the troops with Pilate was to reinforce the Roman garrison overlooking the Jewish temple and its courts. Imagine the imperial procession's arrival in the city, cavalry on horses, foot soldiers with leather armor and helmets, weapons and banners, golden eagles mounted on poles, sun glistening on metal, the marching of feet, the creaking of leather, the clinking of bridles, the beating of drums, the swirling of dust, mixed in with the eyes of silent onlookers, some curious, some odd, most resentful. Pilate's procession displayed not only imperial power, but also Roman imperial theology. According to this theology, the emperor was not simply the ruler of Rome, but the son of God, capital S, capital G. It began with the greatest of emperors, Augustus, who ruled Rome from 31 BCE to 14 CE. Supposedly, his father was the god Apollo. Inscriptions refer to him as son of God, Lord, Savior. Sound familiar? After his death, it was claimed he ascended into heaven to take his permanent place among the gods. Still familiar, his successors continued to bear divine titles, including Tiberius, emperor during the time of Jesus' public activity. For Rome's Jewish subjects, Pilate's procession embodied not only a rival social order, but also a rival theology. As Mark tells the story, Jesus has prearranged a counter-procession. As Jesus approaches the city from the east end of the journey from Galilee, he tells two of his disciples to go to the next village and get him a colt that they will find there. So they do, and Jesus rides the colt down the Mount of Olives to the city, surrounded by a crowd of enthusiastic followers and sympathizers who spread their cloaks and strew palm branches on the road and shout, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven! 
This morning, in churches all over Christendom, congregations are reenacting the scene, albeit probably without so much historical critical explanation. Well, they're probably making the kids do it, shoving a palm branch into little Johnny's hand and prompting Susie to say, Hosanna, louder, say it louder, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And the children look up at the adults, confused by the policy reversal. Aren't children supposed to be seen, not heard in church, except now? And the adults are just hoping someone will do something cute. And the Christian ed director is praying no one gets their eye poked out. And if everyone were honest, the whole charade is awkward and rather hard to explain. The whole story really is uncomfortable. The Jesus parade has bad news written all over it. He's headed right for the cross, and those people lining the streets, did they really not know? Mark has told us multiple times where this ends, which is at the foot of the cross. You'd think the disciples would have caught on. The Pharisees have been plotting against Jesus. The Sadducees have been plotting against Jesus. The hometown crowd in Galilee almost pushed Jesus off a cliff. What did they think was going to happen in Jerusalem? Is it too late to stop the parade? We could tell them, this doesn't end the way you think it ends. How do you not know? I mean, maybe they didn't know. Maybe it's willful ignorance. Maybe it's blissful ignorance. But either way, I'd, I'd like to tell everyone to just pack it up. Go home now. Stop waving the palm branches. Pick up your coats. Shake off the dust. Put them back on. Go home. This doesn't end well. Just stop. I saw two little girls playing tag last week. They were running around, laughing quick as cats. They were having so much fun. What was strange was that they were playing in the lobby of a nursing home, darting around the wheelchairs and between walkers and hospital beds. From the surrounding rooms, you could hear pain and death, worry and grief, and still, still the two little girls played. Didn't they know? Should I have told them to stop? And this crowd in the text, should they have stopped? It's the only way I know how to explain Palm Sunday. This text is the rest of the story from Mark, the 14th chapter, verses 32 to 50. Jesus prays in Gethsemane. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated. And he said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. He came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, 
Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake one hour? Keep awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And one more time he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to say to him. He came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, and with him there was a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, This one I will kiss is the man, arrest him, and lead him away under guard. So when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid hands on him and arrested him. But one of those who stood near drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a bandit? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not arrest me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. All of them deserted him and fled. Here ends this reading inspired by God. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. And now our story finds us in the garden after supper, a place called Gethsemane. The text tells us Jesus was distressed, agitated, grieved. So Jesus does what he always does in times like these. He found a quiet spot to pray. And he brings the disciples along, sit here while I pray, he says to them. The days had been long and full of people. Crowds had gathered to hear Jesus teach and heal, which had also served to keep the merry band of disciples safe. But now it is night, and the cover of darkness makes men bold. The quiet of the garden is broken by the sound of a new crowd. The chief of priests, scribes, and elders with swords and clubs led by Judas. Oh, Judas, the ex-disciple, who if he had still been a disciple, might have actually stayed awake and prayed with Jesus, for Judas understood his former teacher so well that he knew to find the quiet spot to pray, and there Jesus would be. The rest of the disciples couldn't even stay awake an hour. They were found asleep on the job. Judas kisses Jesus on the cheek, and the arrest is set in motion. Then Mark reports, one of those who stood near drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. In the Gospels of Luke and John, the story grows. Luke reports that Jesus heals the man whose ear had been severed, the only gospel to do so. In the Gospel of John, the sword-wielding disciple is reported to be Peter. The story is surprising, for it reports that one of Jesus' followers was armed. 
Or maybe it's not surprising. Perhaps first century open carry laws were not too different than Oklahoma's. Was this the standard practice then? Or, or is this just another instance of Mark's theme of failed discipleship? In any case, in both Gospels of, Mark, of Matthew and Luke, Jesus disavows the action explicitly. In Matthew, Jesus says, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And in Luke, he says, no more of this. Here in Mark, Jesus is silent, but his actions speak loudly. This was, after all, the point that could have changed the entire story. Until now, everyone else who had called for resistance had eventually chosen the sword. Maybe that's why Peter was packing. Maybe Peter thought that at some point Jesus really would choose violence especially in the face of death. They had tried to get him to use violence before you remember a few weeks ago when we were learning from Elijah and Jezebel. There's an episode in the Gospels where the disciples ask Jesus to call down lightning from heaven to take care of some people. You know, just like Elijah had done. But Jesus says no. And he says no Again, on this night, Jesus, of whom it was said, could have called down 10,000 angels, said, no, let's restrain ourselves. Restraint, what do we know about that? Fred Craddock tells a story about speaking at a president's prayer breakfast in South Korea. General Stilwell was his guest, a, 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 his host, a four-star general. And the general gathered officers and the enlisted in a large room, and they had a nice breakfast, and then came the prayers. It was not just prayers in name only. The general's assistant, a colonel, had the soldiers there enter into a period of sentence prayers, sort of like our joys and concerns. Just a sentence, sometimes simply a name or a place. There were sentence prayers for mothers and fathers, sisters and babies, and for the spouse back home, and for peace in the whole world. Moving prayers, nothing for show. Brother Craddock, gave the benediction and the room began to empty, the general approached and said, I want you to remember us in prayer. And Fred said, I will, you know I will. And the general said, not prayer for more power. We have the power. We could just one afternoon destroy this whole place. Pray, pray that we have the restraint appropriate. It was an unusual request. Pray that we have the restraint. An unusual request in part because, well, we really shouldn't have to ask. We have restraint built into the system. Why do we have the executive, judicial, and legislative branches except to build in restraint? Why is it that a person shall serve only two terms as president? Restraint. 
Why do we say that the commander-in-chief of all armed forces in this country will always be a civilian? Restraint. But for all that's built into the system, the general knew, and we know, that the line is thin between power and restraint, and it has never been more at risk since it appears that whoever speaks to the president last wins. Our new national security advisor has argued for attacking North Korea, claiming that it is perfectly legitimate for the United States to respond to the current necessity posed by North Korea's nuclear weapons by striking first. Before that, he called for the bombing of Iran, apparently missing the irony of bombing a country in order to stop a bomb. Before that, he called for the bombing of Iraq after 9-11, claiming that the United States military role would be over quickly as Iraqis exercised their new freedom from Saddam Hussein and established a democracy. We are now working on our second full decade there, thousands upon thousands of dead soldiers, not to mention the number of dead Iraqis, and the creation of ISIS. Restraint? The general knew what was needed. It's not the power we need. It's the restraint. The mark of a civilized society is the restraint of power. The mark of a civilized human being is restraint. Our children called for it yesterday. They led us in prayer and protest calling for a civilized country and a civilized people to have some common sense about guns. For the most part, anyone can get any kind of gun anytime they want in this country. We can, so we do. No restrictions, no restraint. This is our in the garden moment. Let's not be found asleep on the job. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m., with adult education classes at 10 a.m. Mayflower also has a full church school for children of all ages available during the 11 a.m. service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.